discuss the tools, techniques and ideas for growing arts, culture and creativity in our world. My name is Tandy Palmer-Williams and I'm founder and managing director of a research agency called Pattern Makers. In this series, I join with colleagues from theatre, dance, music, visual arts, literature and heritage to speak with experts in research, business, economics, technology and policy. We talk about the challenges facing arts and cultural organisations today like engaging audiences, securing funding and creating positive impacts through our work. I want to help grow your organisation bigger, better and stronger so that collectively we can do even more good in the world. On this episode, I join with one of my all-time research heroes, Alan Brown, and Wendy Weir, Executive Director of Strategic Development and Advocacy at the Australia Council for the Arts. What I think special about Alan's work is that he manages to evoke a sense of wonder and curiosity about the audience experience, which I think is really infectious. He's got a way with words and his experience in the US with Paul Brown as an audience researcher is extensive. Let's get into it. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Wendy. Thank you for having me. Now, I understand you were previously CEO at West Australian Music, business advisor with the Creative Industries Innovation Centre, and artistic director and chief executive of Sydney Writers Festival. I also know that you have a PhD in literature. All of that is true. In my second life, I think I would like a PhD <laughs> in literature. <laughs> so what kind of attracted you to your role at the Australia Council? And for those who don't know, what does it involve? So to answer the second question first, um, I was asked to, my role involves a number of things and I affectionately refer to it in the very technical way of the non-grantee bit. Um, so my colleagues in the executive team have oversight over organisational funding and funding in competitive grant rounds um, and First Nations arts. And my area is the bit that looks at um, the strategy and development in, in a shorthand. So I look after communications and advocacy. I look after research and knowledge management. I look after international development. I look after capacity building where we run um, some very successful leadership programs. I have strategy and planning, and I also have government relations. So I think, I think that, that's, that's the kind of roll call. And in terms of what attracted me to the Australia Council, it's interesting because I've worked in the sector for, for 20 years and you've mentioned a few of the roles that I've had. Um, I've always, I've been one of those, my father was an engineer and my mother was an artist and I think I've had those two worlds collide in me. And so I can do the CEO stuff but I can also do the artistic direction piece as well. Um, and when I was approached to join the leadership team for the Australia Council when it was being remade after the 2012 review, that seemed a pretty exciting opportunity to take up. So I joined almost six years ago and I've been on the roller coaster that is the Australia Council ever since. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like a big job, a fun job, mm. and a job I'm sure many in the sector will aspire to have one day. Um, look, thanks for coming along to the podcast. Today we're going to be interviewing Alan Brown, who is somewhat of a legend in audience research, among audience researchers. I hate I being say. called a legend. <laughs> <laughs> Well, according to your bio, you are a leading researcher and management consultant in the nonprofit arts industry. Um, your work focuses on understanding consumer demand for cultural experiences and helping cultural institutions, foundations and agencies see new opportunities, make informed decisions and respond to changing conditions. And I love this part. Your studies have introduced new vocabulary to the lexicon of cultural participation and propelled the field towards a clearer view of the rapidly changing cultural landscape. I think that's certainly true. I know, I know your work has been a great inspiration to many of us geeks. Um, and it's a real pleasure to have you join us today, Alan. Thank you, Tandy. It's delightful to be here in Sydney and to see you. Now, let's get into it. So, Alan, to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you in this career and sparked your interest in audiences and audience research and mm. how that's kind mm. of propelled you forward over time? <laughs> how much time do we have? <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, well, I, I started life as a singer 
I'm from a kind of musical family, and being involved in choir really saved my childhood. It gave me something to do. I was a really monumental geek, nerd, very introverted child, and being involved in choir from a young age really changed my life. Mm. So I followed that track through high school and into university as a voice per vocal performance major. There was only one little problem with that, which is I had no talent at all. Um, and uh, But my favorite uh, subject in uh, college was Schenkerian analysis of atonal music. And, um, you know, where you paste up musical scores on the wall and you sort of draw circles around sections and you, you sort of analyze music in a visual space. And there was something about that that just fascinated me and really all of music theory. So I graduated. So my, my, uh, college training prepared me for a career in food service, <laughs> which is actually, it's actually true. Um, um, I graduated and worked in restaurants, you know, for a couple mm. years. And um, I was so fortunate to get a job running a small arts festival uh, when I was 26 years old. And I was mentored by an amazing man who was so incredibly generous. You know, at the time, I didn't realize how fortunate I was. But I had to learn uh, the whole um, business of presenting, how to book um theater, dance, music, artists, how to market them, how to fundraise, how to liaise with the board of directors, and all at a very, very young age. So that was just an explosive growth opportunity. I was so fortunate. Um, the highlight of my young career as a presenter was presenting Ella Fitzgerald in concert and meeting her and just being touched by her greatness was amazing. Uh, but I went on to university back for a business degree, and it wasn't until I wandered into Statistics 101 <laughs> that I discovered what the Lord designed me to do. <laughs> and, you know, literally, I mean, you know, we all have our calling, and I didn't really find mine until I was really 30, almost 30 years old. And I just discovered that I could do data analysis, and, and I was really happy spending time in spreadsheets and and eventually SPSS and you know statistical analysis so I just naturally found that and then uh, got a job as an entry-level consultant working in a small arts management consulting firm and I did grunt grunt work on feasibility studies for new arts facilities for years and and just naturally drifted into research and taught myself methods. I mean, it's really scandalous. I should have a PhD in sociology. Um, and I regret not having more schooling mm. in research methods because I had to learn well, myself. I think it's never too late. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> but maybe an honorary uh, well. qualification is more up your alley at this, at this stage. Yeah. So, so I, I grad, gradually drifted into research, learned methods, uh, learned from scholarly researchers uh, through collaborating. And um, at the time, there were not, you know, arts research really wasn't a thing, um, you know, in, in 1990. Uh, and it's really still an emerging field. Um, but it's diversified. There's so many wonderful researchers now all around the world doing wonderful work. And so I kind of live in the space between research, the, the theory of, of research as a scholarly pursuit, and the, the frontline arts researchers, much like you, Tandy, you know, who are actually running arts organizations and need to make very practical decisions about what to do and tr trying to, to empower arts practitioners uh, to be curious and to reach out to research and um, and um, and to just be curious and to learn as much as they can from research. Now your practice over the years has involved a lot of I guess what we call in the sector 
quant yeah. or um, quantitative analysis yeah. and surveying, I know, is yeah. one of your um, yeah. key tools. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the <clears throat> techniques, I guess, that are really common in, in your work and exactly what goes on in kind of executing that? Yeah. Well, there's so many different areas of, of, of research in our little niche sector. You know, there's... Um, obviously study studying audiences and even within that there's whole different veins of, of work but there's also studying communities and um in in the realm of quantitative analysis really designing uh designing surveys for the general public to um to sh share their um, patterns, their interests, their participation patterns, their own creative interests, and 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 developing a body of work around um, sort of profiling the general public in terms of their arts interests um, has been an area of work of mine for a number of years. Not not so much anymore. I mean, we have the big national studies of arts participation, but you know, that just scratches the surface of of, of what people really do. But then in, in the area of applied research, and applied research just means that research that's done with a a specific practice in mind, um uh, to really kind of address the practice of, of a specific organization or the field. We've really developed lots of tools over the years of surveying uh, patrons about their experiences as audience members. And that's been one vein of my work has really been engaging patrons in expressing the experience they had with art. How are they affected emotionally, socially, aesthetically, intellectually, with art? Um, but also, there's th th that's of interest to some arts organizations, maybe not so many others. But there, there are other applied research methods or for audience members. So, for example, um, profiling audience members in terms of how they like to prepare and how they like to make meaning from the work afterwards. And sort of the whole idea of engagement, and, and um, which is really kind of um, a whole a whole area of inquiry uh, that is not well developed, um, and we're you know seeing very different typologies. There are a lot of people who actually don't want to prepare at all because they prefer to go in with this sort of blank slate to be to allow for the element of surprise. So they're very consciously not preparing. And then there are other people who love to prepare. They want to read everything in advance. They want to know the, not just the plot, if it's a play, but they want to have the background on the composer, you know. And, it, you know, there's very different modalities of engaging. And then afterwards, there are people who, like, just want to be quiet and go home and reflect privately. And there are other people who want to dive in argue with their spouse about like what was it that we just saw and they want to make meaning and so i think as a whole field this is a really rich area of trying to understand human behavior around arts and how do people make sense of arts how do they want to manage the experience so that's an area of inquiry and we you know develop survey protocols to get at that and develop you know using cluster sorry geeky stuff cluster analysis factor analysis to develop typologies of arts patrons in terms of their engagement preferences um, but but also really the the deepest frontier I think is um, is understanding people's preferences and tastes for art you know like Lord only knows we all need a better sense of how public taste and art are shifting mm -hmm because it affects every organization um, and and how you know audiences show up to arts programs you know having all these experiences in their lives watching television shows you know it's like what is the effect of the reality television shows on public taste in art right I mean good interesting question uh, I'm not sure I want to know the answer to that <laughs> I, I am equally interested in that Alan and think yeah. um, the other thing that is intriguing me at the moment is um, in a world where 
our tastes um, are being curated increasingly by algorithms um, and what that means for us being able to explore and experiment with new forms of art when mm-hmm. the the likelihood mm-hmm. is that we're going to be continually fed a steady diet of what um, what an algorithm thinks we like. Have, yeah. I mean, what's your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah. Um, wow. Well, before I die, I'd love to do a study of the effect on the human brain of listening to music in random order, uh, which is, you know, how how billions of people are listening to music uh, with an algorithm as their DJ, mm. and they don't know what's coming next. And I think literally our brains change when we're listening to music. It's like, sorry, the title of that study, I've already worked it out. It's called Jackpot. <laughs> because I actually believe it's a gam- it's the psychology of gambling, of random reward. Mm. And sometimes you're listening to music and actually the, the, the next piece that comes on actually is your favorite piece and your brain secretes serotonin and it changes your brain chemistry. And I think this is, um, anyway, so interesting. And, and I think it has a profound effect on orchestras and how they program, you know, um, chamber music ensembles, how they think about playing music and formats uh, that are continuous, where the last note of one song is the first note of the next song. And, and um, anyway, we're just, there's so much rich territory there for research. Um, but back to your question, you, you want to, so anyway, we've developed over the years tools. I mean, Tandy, you and I collaborated on a study uh, 10 years ago. Coming up that long, I think. Um, yeah. For the Australia Council. The Australia Council was interested in impact mm. and intrinsic impact and specifically developing, piloting methods of surveying audience members about their experience right afterwards. And we did it. Was, it, was this the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra? The TSO and the State Theatre Company of South right, Australia were right. our pilot uh-huh. organisations. And we were just, like, starting and, you know, we had developed the surveys and then we didn't even have a dashboard tool at the time. We just worked in Excel. And, and anyway, it was a great experience. But that work has, has gone on and developed and um, we now have... Um, really solid online tools where uh, you know that link directly to the survey software we use survey gizmo um through an api and and so the dash you know audience members take the survey the data goes into survey gizmo it's extracted into our dashboard tool and arts managers can show up at work the day after and log in and see what audiences are saying about last night's performance Mm. in their dashboard tool and their data just aggregates over time in the dashboard and it becomes you know a resource but now we're requiring arts managers to actually be researchers Mm. because they have to look at data and they have to query data and they have to actually conceptualize questions to ask their dashboard and that's a skill you know i'd love to talk about with you as you know are we asking too much of arts managers to be researchers in this way is this a reasonable request what do you think well i think i think that's quite a topical thing to talk about Mm -hmm. and um i certainly can see you know Many of my colleagues in arts management are under enormous, um, you know, working with very limited resources. They're short on time. They're they're delivering 110% um, constantly. So it seems like to us one more thing of them is kind of too much sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the other hand, I think it's already happening. I think Mm -hmm. it's... I think everyone's doing it. So, for instance, in my sessions at the recent Performing Arts Centres conference, you know, just got a straw poll of people who are involved in audience surveying Mm -hmm. and literally 95% Mm. of the hands in the room went up. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of a moot point whether or not, you know, that's the right approach. It kind of, it is what it it is. It's already yeah, kind of the right. state of play. And so I mm-hmm. think um, really mm-hmm. the question is how can we um, do that in a way that's, mm-hmm. you know, co- you know, we can ensure those insights are reliable um, and that arts managers are supported to um, 
you know, interpret that data, I mm-hmm. guess, is where I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of interesting mm-hmm. kind of things to talk about is, mm-hmm. you know, if the audience results of the results of the audience survey say that, um, you know, that, that captivation levels were right. low in, an, in a particular work or a particular mm-hmm. point of performance, what does that then mean? Oh, yeah. And what do we do about that, if anything? Um, yeah. It's quite fascinating. I have a favorite it? example of that. I was working with a presenter in, in the U.S., and, and one of the programs that they surveyed was a contemporary dance company. I won't name the company. And it was um, a real chore for the audience <laughs> based on the survey. You know, we ask one of our questions on the surveys is um is just about emotional resonance and then we ask people what what emotions were you feeling as you left the hall you know please answer in one word you have up to six opportunities to you know because we were fueling a word cloud and this organization you know looked at their word cloud for this artist and you know the the biggest word in the word cloud was disappointed and angry (laughs) and confused and it was perfect example of data that requires you to clarify why you're asking these questions in the first place right so does that kind of a response from an audience you know how do you receive that as an organization does it mean you made a mistake curating that artist i don't think necessarily it does but it certainly suggests that you might have done more to prepare your audience you know i think there are takeaways from that Mm. Uh, some organizations you know how long can you disappoint an audience before they stop coming Mm. and just what is the tolerance for for that So it was a great example of, of research, of impact research, having negative findings and causing some real soul searching. Mm. Wendy, I'd love to ask you in a moment, I guess this kind of raises some interesting questions about, you know, how, how we understand audience experience, you know, when is it appropriate to kind of reflect on that from a funding perspective, to what extent should artists and arts organisations care about audience experiences and feedback like that i think it's something which is is growing in awareness um i remember it was probably about three years ago um in mid 2015 when i was sitting down at a it was a a board gathering of the australia council and we'd invited john daly who many of you will know um from the grattan institute and a a well-known provocateur and a very very smart researcher and he we were talking about things along these lines and he said well wendy are you the australia council for the arts or are you the australia council for the artists and those are two quite different things and that's one of those and it was probably for John being you know the man with the brain of his size it was a throwaway line but for me it kind of got into my ear and Mm. it wormed its way into my brain and I thought that's actually a fundamental question Um, and for this moment in time it's a particularly uh, relevant one as we think about what it means to be an arts council and when paradigms are shifting in so many ways, whether it's about making art, whether it's distributing art, and also about receiving art, what that what does that mean for the Arts Council of the future? So I've thought a lot about that since then, and um, it's certainly made us think about the ways that we should be investing in artists and in art. Um, and also that comment came probably about six months before we got the findings from a significant survey that we'd done of stakeholders. So we were looking, we've got rich data from the public, so we, we know how the public are experiencing arts. Then we got significant uh, amounts of data coming through from our primary beneficiary if we were the Australia Council for the Artists, so from the artists themselves. Um, and then also a lot of uh, sort of data coming in from other stakeholders like government and so on. And what was really interesting was the disparity between what the public was looking for in terms of uh, arts investment and mm. what the artists were looking for in terms of arts investment. Mm. And it was so radically different. And I thought that's that's a chasm which needs to be bridged because you can't continue to operate. Artists will, you know, highlight things 
things like experimentation and risk and all those kinds of things as, as the critical piece where audiences will often, you know, they'll look for the transformative, you know, transcendent kind of moments, which may or may not be associated with those right, things about experimentation right. and risk. Um, and I think as a funder, it's a very interesting situation where you are putting public investment for a public good, which is arts and creativity, and then the public's response to that um, right. is has to be a part of the conversation. So I think in days when you're expecting public investment in your art creation, you actually do need to think about the audience and um, right. failure to do so will lead to a lack of relevance and potential uh, demise. Right. But isn't there also a danger that audience feedback data could be misused by funders? Definitely. And I think that idea that um, the data, you know, the immediate response from a work or, or so on and, and using that as the determination mm. about whether or not uh, an arts organisation should receive, you know, ongoing funding or even right. indeed funding for the next project grant would be very dangerous indeed. I mean, it really comes to the, the core question of what is the role of audience feedback in an artistically driven organisation? Mm. And, and I think really organizations need to do their own soul searching on that because I think the answer is very different in different organizations, mm. you know, and I've, I've, I've worked with both, you know, at the extremes I've worked with theater companies, very illustrious companies where the artistic director was so hungry for the data and, and just ate it up. And was, it was an input, one of many inputs to her decision-making. It was an amazing experience. And then I've also worked with, with other organizations where they just say, we really just don't need to know this. It's for them. It's like static. It's just noise because it's not going to affect our artistic process. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's been really hard as a researcher to accept that as legitimate but I, I honestly think it is. Uh, it, and, you know, don't ask questions you don't want the answers to. And I think it's also very dangerous for funders to require people to ask questions that they don't want the answers to. Hmm. As you're talking, I'm kind of thinking about um, how it, it may come down to individual preference, mm -hmm. whether to engage with the process like audience, you know, experience surveying. Um, or not, and and when that might be appropriate, and I'm kind of curious about what what conditions you think there are, um, or are mm -hmm. there particular mm -hmm. features of certain environments where you think it works well, and how how do you create a, a kind of a safe space for reflection right. where it is empowering and inspiring and pr provocative and challenging, right. but it's kind of safe. Well, I impact research, particularly, I think there's 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 um, I think of impact research actually as audience engagement. So, so um, coaching people, allowing people to express their reaction to a work of art is actually an investment in them as an audience member and can dramatically enhance the value they take away from a work of art. It's all about the questions. What questions are you asking? You know, we never ask people, did you like it or hate, you know, it's like, no, we're asking, how did it affect you? And I think we as a, we as a sector can do a lot more to teach and nurture audience members to have a critical reaction. And how to do that, how to express yourself, you know, because because the, the danger is, is that actually a lot of audience members just don't unpack their experiences that much. You know, we're asking them all these like questions that, you know, that make distinctions, subtle distinctions between social impact and cognitive impact and emotional impact. And, you know, and they just don't like they just know they liked it or not. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they, they, they have a, a, a gut sense of how, how they felt about it and they don't necessarily even want to unpack it. So there's a danger of overreaching, I think, in, in research, and we always have to check ourselves, I think, on that. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, many organizations do these post, you know, talkbacks. You know, that's that's research, that's engagement, um, and if we can just create better methods for facilitating these conversations, there's there's little difference between that and filling out a survey. I see, I see it as the same activity. Mm. 
I kind of um, it might what what I'm reminded about is actually what was in your bio, and that is that your work has given a, a new vocabulary to talk about audience experience. And can you talk a little bit about mm. some of the dimensions of audience uh-huh. experience? Yeah. Well, the, the most provocative um, um, concept, you know, the, 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 we've developed theoretical constructs for impact. Um, I won't go into it, but um, I think... The, you know, the gateway is is um, captivation. Um, and there's a wonderful um, psychologist named Miali Csikszentmihalyi. He's a guru uh, who wrote a number of books um, about flow. Um, and the favorite is Flow, the, the Theory of the Optimal Experience, I think. And basically he says that achieving a state where, of flow when you're completely absorbed in any activity you're doing, whether you're cutting the grass or doing the dishes or sitting in a theater, that being fully absorbed is the root of happiness. And uh, he's really developed a whole scholarly body of thought around that. And, And I think when we apply that to the arts, it makes so much sense in terms of creating the circumstances where audience members can get fully absorbed and there's so much arts groups can do the you know the way we welcome people into our facilities uh, the lighting the temperature the seat comfort uh, the introduction I mean there's so much we can do to create the conditions where audience members can go into this full state of absorption and and what chicks and me asserts really is that is that when you achieve this flow and i honestly believe that people go out to to achieve a state of flow that's you know uh, that, that that's our fancy language but you know they go to get lost and lose track of their problems and forget about work and forget about all the things that are agitating them and 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 this, you know, we allow people now in the digital age this opportunity to concentrate on something for more than a minute, you know. And I think this is what we're doing in a way as a whole sector is we're teaching people to pay attention, you know, when there's so many forces pushing us in the other direction. And I don't think we necessarily talk about that as a sector. But achieving flow for me is, is, is the gateway to impact because if you're distracted, if you're not paying attention, if you're uncomfortable in your seat, if someone next to you is wearing too much cologne or perfume, you know, I mean, it's just like there are a million things that, that could take you out of flow. But when you're in that zone, you really do, you really, you know, that's when the artwork can really cast its magic on you. And, and you lose track of time and you get fully absorbed. And then, and then you're, you're experiencing this, this work of art with, with, you know, hundreds or thousands of other people and everyone's laughing together or holding their breath together. And you have this collective response and it's, it's amazing what the impact but but achieving a state of flow is the gateway to impact so it's just one example fascinating and i'm reminded of i think your knack for inspiring and i guess sparking curiosity <laughs> uh, i think that's there's yeah there's few people who do it quite the way you do it ellen um let's talk about how the tool is is, is, is being applied. Mm. Can you share some of mm-hmm. the, the interesting examples over the years of where you think it's been, I guess, successful or interesting? Well, yeah, I guess impact assessment, you know, is, um, is, is just kind of a um, quirky niche of research. Um, and, you know, I don't presuppose that it, 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 it's for everyone. It's, you know, we do... Um, you know, we, we have, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 organizations now that we support. And, and it's, it's surveying, impact surveying is a peculiar 
variation of audience. You know, a lot of organizations just collect demographic information and motivations and buyer behavior stuff and where are you sitting and, and, and maybe some satisfaction questions. There's a lot, there's a lot of energy now, believe it or not, on um, um, Fred Reichheld's um, net promoter score. Would you recommend us to a friend? And I just, I can't believe we're still using this. I'll get in trouble for saying this, but you know, really, we're still using that as an indicator. Uh, but there's a lot of energy around that now. So um, I try to be open-minded about that. But um, we're serving for, you know, American Ballet Theater, their Lincoln Center audiences. And, um, you know, they have a star dancer named Misty Copeland. And, and so it's so fascinating to see the audience, you know, in the survey results say that they came to see her. And then, to, you know, they're not even serving about impact, though, really. Um, um, but organizations like the Chicago Symphony, I mean, they, they mostly survey like their new work, you know, mo most organizations, um, really don't need to survey everything. Um, but it's the stuff around the periphery, the experimental stuff, the new stuff, you know, when they're developing new programs where it's really helpful to get audience feedback. Um, and that's kind of where a lot of the activity is. Um, and particularly, we're doing a lot of survey work with children's theater, and we're experimenting with how to survey kids, <laughs> which is tricky uh, and has all sorts of ethical issues around it also. Um, but we generally, um, uh, we've been doing this with the new Victory Theater in New York City, is um, we actually hold the kids in the hall. There's a talk back right after the show, every every performance. And the kids are handed the surveys during the talkback, and they actually take the surveys during the talkback, and then they hold them until they're done with the surveys, and then they let them go. So it's a little hostage taking, but if you really want to collect data from kids, you have to. You can't do make it, it optional. There. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, there's um, you know a wide range of stuff, and um, and not all impact needs to be quantitative. I think it's you know it's so deeply qualitative to start with. Um, you know, I would encourage arts groups to maybe, um, you know, if they don't want to survey, is to just recruit a panel of audience members, maybe 20 or 30 audience members, who just meet with you after some performances and, and give you feedback. That's technically called a panel study, where you, you know, you pre-recruit a panel and then you meet with them repeatedly. And I'm seeing this actually in the theater field where some theaters are are doing this. They don't call it a panel study. They're, they're actually, it's part of their patron engagement mm -hmm. um, where they recruit a group of audience members who just want to learn about the theater and they bring them there and they explain their process and they get to become sort of experts about the theater. But for me, that's just a step away from a panel study. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of arts groups would benefit from having these little panels of audience members who give feedback. I mean, imagine just from a marketing, like being able to test your brochure copy or test, you know, which photograph to put on the cover of your brochure or, mm. you know, how, how handy it would be to have this little panel that you could convene quickly, either online or in person, and ask questions. What, what are some of the things that an organization might want to consider if they were going to do something like that to make, to make it meaningful and robust, I guess? Well, it's all about who you're talking to and... Uh, if it's truly a random cross-section, you know, you'd need to randomly recruit people. And then I think you can, there in any group, people who talk too much or are not going to be helpful or disruptive and you can replace people, sort of hone, hone the group. Um, but you always have to push back against bias in that, you know, what we technically, my favorite term, acquiescent response bias, <laughs> is people tell you what they think you want to hear. And we, we just always have to push, push against that and invite people to criticize us and let them know how helpful it is when they do. Mm. 
hard to do when you're uh-huh. close to the work. Yeah, right? and when the CEO is sitting right behind the table. Mm. <laughs> Fascinating. But you know what? Arts audiences are fearless. Like, I, I can't tell you how many times, uh, you know, I do that and people just rant right in front of staff members. So I think with a little, you know, with the right setup, you can get good data. I think um, that it's a really important proposition um, because in Australia particularly, we've suffered a great, a significant reduction in the amount of arts criticism. Um, Uh, So whether it's reviewers or theatre reviewers and, you know, the the number of column inches that are available for reviewing arts have have shrunk dramatically, the number of people actually doing it. um, A lot of people I know who were, who had imagined that that might be their vocation quickly changed in their, you know, midstream around about the age of 30 when they realised there was not going to be any any work in this field anymore. But it is interesting because I think um, having an informed perspective is important as well as opposed to, to the public perspective and that's that's something yeah. which is really challenging right yeah. now for many organizations yeah. well we i think languish for lack of criticism mm. i think it's a big structural problem in our whole sector uh, because people learn from critics mm. uh, and i think arts groups you know should be distributing links to critical reviews of, of to audience members whether and especially you know reviews that aren't good you know mm. they just Arts groups just instinctively, you know, want to distribute positive information about their work, but it's actually helpful to audiences to have actually differing opinions, mm. you know, because no one has the last word, right? You know, it's like every human has a different reaction to a work of art, and criti- critics are special because they're, they're experts, right? But even critics are wrong sometimes. So if I were a theater company or, you know, I would be sending out two reviews with different opinions to my audience and ask my audience to run their experience against these two different viewpoints on the work. Because building the critical skills of your audience is a long-term investment in your organization. I mean, that's why audience engagement is so strategic to our whole field. Is, you know, it's not just about m- magnifying the impact of the work. That actually is, is a huge piece of it. But it's actually investing in audience members capabilities to have critical reactions to art and that's a lifetime investment Alan I know you've worked with a number of different trusts and foundations in the US and and internationally Mm -hmm. and with funding bodies Mm -hmm. What, what do you think the role of funding bodies and grant grantors is in this field and are there interesting examples that you can share with us. <laughs> Is this the segment about speaking truth to power? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, God, that's such a complicated topic. Um, foundation funders in the U.S. play a huge role. You know, we don't have the government support that you have here. And I think there's really big differences between, you know, government support and and philanthropic support from private foundations. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been working with the Canada Council recently and, and learning so much about what the world looks like through the eyes of a federal, you know, f- funder distributing public money and all the responsibility that comes with that. Um, and you have here this model for sort of multi-year operating support, um, which we don't really have. Um, so, but but funders, whether they're government or philanthropic, um, really exercise an enormous amount of influence over arts organizations, um, and that influence can be used for good or. N- or it can be manipulative and dysfunctional, um, and I've you know I've seen both. Um, but but I, I think f- funders, certain especially government funders, you know really have a role to play in encouraging arts groups to sort of up their game in terms of management practices good capitalization, how to train board members. I mean, there's just so much 
capacity building work that, you know, our sector is so decentralized. It's a mess, you know. It's like our whole sector is like a, a huge multinational corporation with thousands of branch offices and no headquarters. You know, so we have all these groups doing their own thing. And, and we just need, we need more glue. We need more backbone as a sector. And so, so government agencies serve as that backbone. And I think that's incredibly important. And I'm not just saying that because <laughs> you're here, Wendy. I, I truly, truly believe that. In the U.S., we have philanthropic foundations and they all have their own quirky guidelines. And, um, um, I see a lot, I call it the dance of mutual deception between funders and arts groups where promises are made uh, that are false uh, and both parties believe the falsehoods and are comfortable um, deceiving each other. Sorry, that sounds horribly cynical. But um, arts groups operate are allowed to operate at structural deficits and they go to the foundation marketplace for project grants i'm using my fingers to make air quotes around project grants which really become operating grants because the money is just sucked into operate working cash and then they have to perform on their project and 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 they're little you know doing as little as possible sometimes to make that happen and then i get called in as an evaluator and you've had this experience and you're you know trying to establish accountability and do evaluation work and it's um you know i like to say that you know arts groups getting grants from foundations is like a snake swallowing a pig right and what's left when the snake digests the pig but a fatter snake that's very hungry for another pig and this is the story of of the dysfunctional <laughs> relationship between funders and arts groups. Mm. Sorry, that's a little poignant, <laughs> overly poignant metaphor. <laughs> but this is a podcast, so we want mm. people to have poignant images. And a good giggle, too. <laughs> um, I think it's, yeah, it's a fascinating area to consider, and so much of it comes, comes down to resources, doesn't it? Yeah. About... Um, how much we can achieve with how little we have yeah mm. well and but but also i don't know why but there's no one is ever allowed to talk about downsizing like you know n when we do strategic planning at least in the u.s i won't project this on australia is is is, is, is strategic plans is just a ruse for like fundraising planning like we just need more money to do what we do no one is even allowed to talk about downsizing in a planning context. It's so unpleasant because it means people would lose their jobs. And so, mm. so we just have this growth. We have success equals growth. Mm. And then people become unsustainable. And then philanthropic foundations are complicit in that sometimes. And, you know, we really need funders who actually reward organizations for downsizing or right-sizing or even going out of business you know we use the term funder taker <laughs> i like it where is the philanthropic yeah. pool of money to help people elegantly end mm. and become something new or different mm. Mm. you know yeah in, in a natural ecosystem there is birth competition for resources and regular dying and we do really well at birth, and we do really well at com competition for resources, and we do, we're really lousy at dying. Mm. We don't know how to do that. Mm. And I think this is where leadership in the funding sector could really come in. Mm. Sorry, we've gotten very philosophical. We have. Here. We have back to Friday night at 5 p.m., and um, the weekend beckons. Yeah. Uh, if people would like to find out more about your work, where should they go? wolfbrown.com is our website um we do blog from time to time you do you have um, a, a wonderful semi-regular newsletter that i always look out for in my inbox with some you know thought leadership yes, that yes, is often yes. yeah look look really for inspiring. my forthcoming biography autobiography speaking truth to power no actually i'm not writing that 
<laughs> maybe at the end of your career. <laughs> maybe, maybe at the end, yeah. Wendy, if people want to find out more about the Australia Council's work in terms of arts development, what can they look out for? Um, they can go to our website, australiacouncil.gov.au, and they should check out our research portal, um, Arts Nation, which is has recently been revamped, if anyone hasn't been there, and it's uh, got a whole lot of uh, amazing work in there, and you can search well on it. So, mm, Fantastic. Yeah, I think the Australia Council has probably the, the best quality research out there on the arts in terms of both audience participation, um, artistic careers and arts practice, and some really landmark research on, on First Nations. Yeah. Um, programming and audience development, which I think every Australian arts worker should yeah. really read and immerse themselves with. And I'm really excited that this year is the data collection year for the National Arts Participation Survey, and we shall have up-to-date, accurate picture of Ooh. arts attendance and attitudes mm-hmm. in the next t- 12 months, 6 months or so. Uh, look for it in July 2020. July 2020. Excellent. Well, hopefully we'll have an up-to-date picture on many of these trends and more when that comes out. I'm really looking forward to it. That's all we have time for. Thank you so much to you both for joining us today. Thank you, Dandy. We'll see you next time. So, a few key takeaways from me for that conversation. Audience feedback can be fuel for artistic reflection and that we ignore it at our peril. Not everything has to get five stars, but it's important to set an intention or expectation for what a work will achieve and measure and reflect against that. If you heard something that you want to know a little bit more about, you can visit the show notes. These are a set of resources that my team compile on every episode, including the guest bios, key points covered, and useful links to resources mentioned in the conversation. You can access these at our website, www.thepatternmakers.com.au slash theory of creativity, one word. We also publish the full transcript, which you're very welcome to reshare any way you like. Theory of Creativity is published through a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike license, which means you can freely share any part of it as long as you attribute the source and that you're also sharing it for free use. Now, if you've made it to this point, then I have a favour to ask. Will you take 30 seconds to rate and review Theory of Creativity? And if you hit subscribe, you'll be helping more people hear these ideas, techniques and tools so that collectively we can do even more good in the world. Sound like a plan? This project has been assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council, its arts funding and advisory body. It has been produced in collaboration with arts leaders around Australia. You know who you are. Thank you so much for your support. If you're curious about our origin story, you can head to our website, www.thepatternmakers.com.au and navigate to the blog where we talk about the behind the scenes of making this feast. We'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners upon whose lands this podcast is made, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And we want to acknowledge First Nations people everywhere. 